Only in this country would this happen, where some little chubby gay immigrant kid from a lower working class family grew up in a suburb of Miami is going to read a poem to the entire country. And it's me. <laughs> and my mother's sitting next to me who grew up in a dirt floor home in Cuba. And I wasn't proud for me. I was proud for our country that this is a possibility. This is something that can happen to anyone or someone. We're talking to Richard Blanco. We're talking about his amazing book, How to Love a Country, published in 2019 by Beacon Press. I don't pick favorites on this show, but I wept a little bit. I like really, really, really love this book. There were some that made me sad. There was many that made me happy. And there were many that made me contemplative. And especially at this moment, this show comes out several weeks staggered, but we're kind of at a moment right now where these January 6th hearings are going on and we're reeling from several school shootings, which if I'm being honest, I think I've almost forgotten about, even though they happened like two weeks ago. But it's just this becomes so commonplace. And your book is called How to Love a Country. You are presumably a somewhat progressive person just by the fact that you're gay and live in Maine and read Barack Obama's inauguration. <laughs> we, I'll include myself in that class, have a reputation for being America haters, but that always bothered me because I love living here. I don't want to live anywhere else. I love this country and I love what it stands for. I love what it's about and I love what it is right now. I haven't been able to find language to describe that. And I haven't really been able to find language to describe it until I read your book. So thank you for that. If that's not a plug for all of our listeners to go read the book, I mean, seriously, go get it. It's a great book. You're going to love it. Let me just start with a question, then we'll get into the poems. Do you love America? Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so that's not sort of a yes or no question, but I think it's always been the question in my mind. It's not just, do I love America? It's more like, does America love me? Am I American? Am I part of the American narrative? These are questions I've been asking since I was a kid. Growing up as an immigrant, you know, immigrant working class family, there's always the sense that I'm not sure I am American, especially also growing up in Miami, which is like another country. But then also, ironically, or in contradiction to that, because we were immigrants, a great sense of pride and belief and joy in what this country was able to do for us, specifically were Cuban exiles. And they get that too. So in some ways, my mother and my parents are not only my lifeline to Cuba, they're also, in a way, my connection to the United States. And in fact, she was the person that sat next to me at the inauguration because of her journey. And that's the poem, A Mother Country in the book, because of the sacrifices that they made leaving an entire country. It reminds me of a lot of what's happening in, in Ukraine. I can barely watch it, but having to abandon your country and then for the sake of these ideals and promises. And so in a way, they have an internal optimism about this country because this has got to work out. <laughs> we gave up a lot for something not to work out. It's always kind of a balance. And one of the hardest things to writing the inaugural poem was actually asking myself that very question, do you love this country enough to write a poem about it? Because you can't write a poem if it's not from the heart. And also the question of, does this country love me back? And then around the time, speaking of shootings, while I was writing the poem, the Sandy Hook shootings happened. You know, we all come together in times of great joy or tragedy. And it made me feel like, no, I am part of this great big family and like every big family we're dysfunctional we don't know what we're doing sometimes but we're still trying to figure it out and then i just felt like 
in what other country would this immigrant kid be even asked to write a poem, to present a poem at the presidential inauguration? And that sort of my question again, since I first started writing, they say every poet is writing one poem all their life. For me, it comes down to one word, poem. And it's all what that big word means. It's like asking what is love. You know, it's a huge word. It means family, community, country. It means even my sexuality, the homeland of my sexuality, who I belong to, where I belong to. So all of that, in a way, has always been there. In fact, my first poetry assignment in graduate school was write a poem about America. <laughs> so when the president <laughs> called, I almost felt like saying, this is the same assignment I got 20 years ago. But yeah, there's no final answer and I keep on questioning it. That's what this book is about. I think the hopeful part of it, optimistic part of it comes, like I said, from that feeling of my parents while still calling out what needs to be called out. But I think it's also the artist's job to give us a way out, to give us something we're not talking about, to give us some kind of light at the end of the tunnel, to make us look at something a different way that isn't just the expected to make us look at the complexities and contradictions of any given issue, how they exist in the world, how they exist in us as the art makers. And that was a big challenge for that book because I didn't want it just to be an America bashing book. I mean, what does that solve? You know, I think there's plenty of people already doing that, but I wanted the book to open up a dialogue to make us think about something different or create some kind of shifted discourse in some ways. So, yeah, all that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's certainly not an America bashing book. It almost made me want to stand up and put my hand over my heart at some points because it's a love letter to America. And it's if you love something, it's OK to point out the things about it that need to be better, especially when it's a work in progress, like a country or any relationship is. Yeah, there's an epigraph in the book. I say it all the time in my readings. And it's by James Baldwin. And it says, the role of the artist is exactly the same as the role of the lover. If I love you, I have to make you conscious of the things you don't see. <laughs> kind of relates to marriage there too, right? <laughs> the title is in a way also a question. How do you love a country? What is a country? It's an abstraction. What is there to love about it? What is also the implication of why wouldn't you love it? What is there to also hate about it? Because... Like love, it's a complicated matter. It's not always black and white. Truth is always in the gray in some ways. So <laughs> it's also, it's really interesting. I wrote, when did I publish that book? 2018. And it feels like I wrote it yesterday, right? Because <laughs> we've gotten even more divisive and even more questioning, what is this thing? What is this country? More complexities than even before. I've brandished this theory several times and nobody likes it, but I'm going to try it again anyway. The thing that I think is amazing about America, and I think conservatives and progressives react to this exact same thing just in different ways, and that is that in theory, everybody in America is equal. That is how our laws are written, and that is how our constitution is written, and that is how we are taught to think. In practice, of course, that's not true. Because how could it possibly be true? But I think that just the very fact that it's true in theory and that nobody can tell you in America with the force of law, you can't do this because you're Cuban, you can't do this because you're Puerto Rican, is kind of amazing and should not be taken lightly and should not be taken for granted. And I think that when the conservatives in my life talk about America, they say like, look, you can do anything. And I say, well, sure, but it's a lot harder for a person of color to do certain things than it is for a white person. That's just a fact, even though it's not written down in a law anywhere, it's still a fact. 
So that's part of what I love and part of what I hate is like, I hate the fact that it is in practice, a difficult place to live for certain people. But I love the fact that it is in theory, an easy place to live for everybody. Yeah, I agree. And I think of all the founding documents as sort of the mission statement of this huge nonprofit, <laughs> which is not <laughs> nonprofit, but your whole entire work is trying to fulfill that mission, right? And just because you have a mission statement doesn't mean you actually are operating exactly out of it. You evolve and it's something you reach for. In terms of comparing it to an art also, I always say, you know, it's a work in progress. And let's face it, sometimes we write a really bad poem or a really bad law, or we've had really bad laws, but we go back. Hopefully the momentum is forward, but sometimes we'll take five steps backwards and then we'll take three steps forward and then 20 steps backwards. But hopefully the sum will be moving towards the fulfillment of that mission statement, right? I find peace in that when I think things are going a little too crazy. Also, I think just given my background, being an immigrant also gives you a different perspective of you ain't seen nothing yet. (laughs) That's how bad this could get. And so like, I work with that and against that too. It's like, uh (laughs) uh-oh, like we better speak up about this because this is exactly what's happening my parents Cuba. And yet, ironically, also lets you know by comparison how exactly we said all these other freedoms and things that we don't even have to think about for the most part. Again, depends on who and what class and what color you are and whatnot. But yeah. (laughs) If someone doesn't hire you for a job that you're qualified for because of your race, that is against the law. Even though it still happens, it's not legal to do. And there's something about the tension between progressives and conservatives that like, On the one hand, a progressive could say we haven't come far enough. People do not have enough rights. Things are not as they should be. But a conservative could look at the last 50 years and say we've come pretty damn far. I think both positions are correct. I mean, we have since the 1960s, we have made a lot of progress. I mean, even in my lifetime, we've made a lot of progress in pretty much every area. But there's also a long way to go. I mean, I think it's always good to look back and say, like, look, this is heading in the right direction. We're probably not going to get to the mountaintop, maybe not in my lifetime, but I can see it and we're walking towards it. There's just cycles. Hopefully they're just cycles. This is a real sort of more poetic or really psychological thing. (laughs) But what we've been seeing in the last few years about authoritarianism, part of it is a knee-jerk reaction because if we look at human nature, it is kind of scary to be homogenized. We're not wired in that way, right? The idea that we all have one story because we're still essentially tribal. And so when we see these social advances, social political advances, social justice advantage, which sort of starts blending everybody on equal ways, I'm not defending it, but I think that's why people buy into the story of like, oh no, we got to pull it back. You're not us. We are the people that really own this country. Right? Everybody else needs to go away again. So I understand that almost. I'm not excusing it, but I think there's obviously sometimes real hate behind that. But it's also a weird challenge that we have in the 21st century is how do we all become one globally and yet maintain our stories and our narratives and our traditions? And I think that's something that's affecting a lot of people in many different ways. Social media being another way in which we, in some ways, are all homogenized in this platform. And so we have to fight to see who's going to do the craziest post or like, you know, fighting for distinction in this platform, which is about really 
combining everybody into this one world, right? So anyway, things I think about after I have my Cuban coffees. (laughs) (laughs) When were you proudest of America in your lifetime? I gotta say, and I'm not just gonna say this because this is my man, but I gotta say when we elected Barack Obama, I was like, wow, we finally turned this corner. Not that it's over. We haven't reached a mission yet, but I think I've never felt prouder ever. And it wasn't just that he won. It was the sheer numbers of how he won. Even Florida, I think, was blue that election, right? So I felt, wow, we've really turned a corner. And also, again, when I read at the inauguration, it hit me while I was sitting there. I'm like, only in this country would this happen, where some little chubby gay immigrant kid from a lower working class family grew up in a suburb of Miami is going to read a poem to the entire country. And it's me (laughs) and my mother sitting next to me who grew up in a dirt floor home in Cuba. And I wasn't proud for me. I was proud for our country that this is a possibility. This is something that can happen to anyone or someone. Mine was similar, actually. It was the 2008 inauguration. George W. Bush and Barack Obama could not have been more different people, could not have represented more different things. And to see the peaceful transition of power between those two, that made me well up with, it gives me goosebumps thinking about it, that this regime that had ruled the country for eight years just said, all right, well, them's the rules and just rode off into the sunset and let the new administration take over. Yeah, I had the same feeling when I was at the inauguration. I wrote a small memoir that's called For All of Us One Today, an inaugural poet's journey. And it takes you from the moment I get the phone call through the writing of the poems, through being in Washington. But people ask me, you know, were you frightened? Were you scared? And I was like, I wasn't as scared as you would think I would be. I was kind of pretty even keeled because you do feel this palpable sense that you're in service to something much bigger than you. Much bigger than you and your poem, bigger than the president, bigger than Beyonce that was sitting a few rows in front of me. That moment really does feel like one of the most unique American things. And sure, everybody does that now, but think about what that felt like almost 300 years ago, right? You know, you chop somebody's head off and then you became the king, you know? Like that was where you were born into it and too bad, you know? It's really interesting in Spanish, there isn't the word inauguration in that context doesn't really translate. It's really termed toma de posesión, taking of possession. Because our history is very different <laughs> than Americans' history's foundings. So I always found that interesting. But yeah, that feeling feels so, so American. I never even thought of that. But yeah, it really is the word inauguration is the idea is that the people are bestowing something upon you, not that you're taking something from someone, which is, yeah, that's never how politics ever has worked ever before. And I wondered, why would you get up at six in the morning in the cold? And even if you love Obama or whatever president you voted for, and it really is the power of witness that saying, don't forget that you're up there because we're down here and we're watching, you know, we love you, but we're watching you. We're here to bear witness to this moment because it's our moment. We're giving you this power. You're not taking it. It gives me goosebumps. And so I was like, this isn't about me. This is about something much bigger and a moment really swelled up in me. And I was able to deliver the poem in a way that I never thought I could. Yeah, it's amazing how 40 million eyes will do that to you, right? One of the things I talk about with my friends is that I think 
in any performing art, that is the difference between a professional and an amateur is that professionals rise to that kind of pressure. It's a learned skill. You have to go up with butterflies and not fuck up, even if it's just in your local coffee house. You have to do that a couple times until you realize that like, yeah, when I get on stage, it's going to be okay. So I wanted to ask you two final questions. It's kind of a big one, but how do we heal as a country? And what are we healing from? Do you think we're more divided than ever? And if so, what do you think is the solution? That's a big question. <laughs> I don't have one answer, nor much less any number of answers, but my sensibility is, and what I try and do in my poetry is, and I don't know the answer or the solution, but somehow we have to be able to get back in touch with each other's humanity. Also, by that same token, plow through the understanding of how manipulated we are all of us <laughs> by media and social media and all these enterprises, which are really capitalist driven enterprises, which don't have a morality. They don't. Right? They're responsible only to make money. So I think if we can see past that and stop being manipulated by that. And I think what's the common ground? I know that sounds obvious, but the problem is obvious, <laughs> right? It just keeps on getting more and more polarized because we just keep on upping the ante on everything. Like you were saying about progressives. Okay, we get it. But is this really the next most important thing in the agenda that at this point, nobody in the middle is going to go for, right? <laughs> right? And then on the other side, you have like, really, we can't say gay anymore? Seriously, first of all, it's an infringement on freedom of speech, but that's what came out of your hat. And so it just keeps on escalating and escalating. Escalations sell news shows and they also buy votes. So each party also can't admit the cracks or weaknesses in ourselves. The answer to me at the end of the day is read more poetry <laughs> or art is obviously to me, I think one of the places in which those conversations can happen, in which we have a different kind of learning. When we look back at history, what do we look at to understand the society? We look at their architecture, at their literature, at their music. That's what tells the real story. And so... <laughs> but I gotta say, I don't know if things need to get worse before they get better. <laughs> Who knows? My sense is that they probably do. So Richard Blanco, Cuban-born immigrant, and Lucas David Cantor Santiago, second-generation Puerto Rican, I would like to know your opinion on the term Latinx. I like it. I didn't have any problem with it until I found out that all the Spanish-speaking countries hated it. So I'm like, oh, yeah, I see why, because you can't really pronounce it in Spanish. <laughs> Latine, you know, it doesn't translate very well. There's a new term now, I think it's called Latin, L-A-T-I-N-E, I believe. Latine or something like that. I don't know too much, but I think that's what people are settling on now. That seems to be a little more acceptable to the Spanish-speaking community. But I use Latinx all the time for a long time. When I was writing, it was Latino slash Latina, you know, Latino slash O slash A. Right? But now we're entering a different world. And I think it also has to do with how gendered Spanish is, right? I don't know. Maybe the Spanish-speaking world in general is not there, but maybe they are. I don't know. Achi Obejas wrote a brilliant book. It's a flip book, so it's in Spanish and English. And one side is Spanish, one side is English. It's called Boomerang. She degendered the Spanish. 
in most of the poems, which is just fascinating to read how you do that in Spanish, which is interesting. A little confusing because it almost sounds like another language or like really medieval Spanish somehow. I'm on Team Latine. My problem with Latinx is simply that I think it's an ugly word. If that really hurts you to be called Latino or Latina, call you whatever you want. I just think Latinx is an ugly alternative. Like you're axed out. (laughs) Yeah. So the last question that we ask all of our guests is to recommend two books to our audience. Oh boy. You know, I almost picked this book to talk to you about it. For any engineers out there, (laughs) it's called The Existential Pleasures of Engineering. That book changed my entire life. If you're an engineer out there or anything in the technology field whatsoever, anything in the left brain world, if that's your career or what you're studying, it's really a fascinating look at the history of engineering. And so it's not a terribly big, thick book, but it changed my life because it made me understand what an engineer really is or has been throughout history and understood that that really wasn't the absolute opposite of being a poet, that there were many things that actually shared some ground in the way that I was wired that worked for engineering input. So very weird book recommendation. I don't think he saw that one coming. (laughs) He's a great writer. He's an even better engineer. So the other book that I was thinking of talking about was any book by Elizabeth Bishop, who is my greatest influence, is a poet that I turn back to over and over and over and over again. There's a great book that's her collected works, which isn't very thick either. A very accessible poet that was writing in the times when work wasn't that accessible and has really been more recognized in the latter part of the 20th century than even in her lifetime, even though she did win the Pulitzer Prize. But we realize that she's become an influence for so many poets. And poetry is a lot about place and home and identity. She lived in Brazil for 30 years. She lived in Key West. She lived in Maine. She was always looking for home. But the imagery that she uses is just so gorgeously striking. And the way she tells the story visually and tells experiences of her life visually are just beautiful. So one of my favorite poets. (laughs) Richard Blanco, you're an amazing guest. You're an amazing poet. So glad to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us. (laughs) Thanks, Lucas. If you like this podcast, please rate and review it. It's very important. It really helps the show out. So if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, scroll down to the section where it says rate and review. Hopefully you're going to select five stars and maybe write us a nice review. Or if you don't like the podcast, write us a bad review. That's fine too. The Book Society podcast is produced by me, Lucas Cantor, and Santiago Ramones, who does all the editing and is really great at it. He has a podcast called Bit Depth, which is really good too. The best way to find out about Book Society is to go to the Book Society website, booksocietypod.com. Get on the mailing list. I'm going to send out a newsletter. Hello, Book Society listeners. So I'm supposed to write a book. It's called Music Code. That is the official title per my publisher. It will be out in June of 2023, but also maybe in November of 2023. We'll see. I'm at the, I don't believe that I can do this. I don't think I can finish it. I don't think writing a book is a possible thing that a person can do stage of the project right now. My agent and my editor assure me that I will get over it. So do my mom. So do every podcast guest that I talk to and complain about this after we get off the air. So 
they're all confident I can do it, and they're probably right. They're pretty interesting and intelligent people, so I'm going to believe them. But I feel like I'm sort of at the bottom of this project at the moment, and it's very difficult for me to keep up with the reading for the podcast and the reading for the research. So we'll be back in the fall. Hopefully, we'll have some Miami Book Fair authors to talk to. We also are going to have some returning authors in season three. I'll just tease right now that Megan O'Giblin and I have found an even more esoteric and weird book about the nature of the brain to talk about, and we're going to discuss that together at some point over the summer and release that episode in the fall. There are a lot of really great episodes coming up in the fall, so for those of you following along in real time, we're going to be off for a couple of weeks, and we'll see you in the fall. Have a fantastic summer. interviewed by some great people you've been interviewed by terry gross would you say this is the second best interview you've ever done no the first first <laughs> first my man <laughs>